Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by Alex Hillman to talk about his new book, Tiny MBA. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a number of weeks now, and I'm just excited to sit down and enjoy the end of a beautiful day with you. <laughs> uh, I can see the inspirational poster now. <laughs> the end of a beautiful day with Jonathan Stark. <laughs> <laughs> new show title. Uh, cool. So for folks who haven't come across your name before, if, if they exist, uh, could you give us like a quick 60 second background? Yeah. So my I'm sort of known in sort of two worlds. One of them is in the world of co-working, started a co-working community here in Philadelphia called Indie Hall back in 2006. But probably more relevant to your listeners, I'm also the co-founder of Stacking the Bricks with my friend Amy Hoy, where we create articles, podcasts, videos, courses, lessons, and books, among other things, for folks who have creative skills and often are trying to make the shift from selling their time for money to literally anything better than that. And I know mm -hmm. that's sort of the, the title of the show, Ditching Hourly. We're trying to get folks away from the hours. We focus on helping people create businesses that are, are based around products. So yep. they're a bit more scalable in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's fabulous. I, I recommend 30 by, 30 by 500 and, and your material all the time. Thank um, you. Big fan of you guys, big fan of Amy. Uh, and I agree with, I mean, Amy and, my, <laughs> Amy and I have had a couple of disagreements on Twitter, like as one does. But, Who hasn't? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's all in good fun, though. Like, we're basically on the same page around all, all of this stuff. And I would kind of call it the you know, the the new MBA, the new business, the new kind of business, like, you know, how do you, how do you navigate a world in which everything's digital? You know, like if you're going to create a business where everything's digital, like what in incremental, in, incremental cost of a sale is essentially zero. Like, how do you price things? How do you create those things in the first place? How do you deliver value? How do you satisfy clients or customers? Yeah, I think digital is definitely in, in like one key aspect to it. Digital is and the internet, frankly, it's not just the format, the products being digital, but also delivery and reach. You know, the internet is like the world's biggest, you know, internet. It's, it's a bazaar. Like if you think, go back to the olden yeah. days of how people shopped, you went to in your city or your town or your village, you, you went, you went shopping and you went to individual purveyors of stuff who you knew had the best version of that stuff. And now we just have that on a global scale where you, I don't need to be in the same city or town or village as, as the other person. Mm -hmm. What that does mean is that people need to go into things with the, the right frame of mind and the right strategies to be able to start somewhere. Cause that, that really becomes the question is, and, and sort of where the, the idea for all of our work. And then most specifically with the tiny MBA is I think folks are soaked in a certain narrative around business because of the kinds of businesses they've seen and the narrative around business being, you know, tech startups and things like that, which obviously is the tiniest slice of the entire world of business, even on the internet. Yeah. So we try to help counter some of that narrative with concrete examples and you know folks like you and a lot of your you know colleagues and a lot of your listeners who are folks who have you know left a full-time job to start a service business but then realized that the service business is really just the ground floor and there's all of these floors above it but there's not a clear set of stairs to take the navigation's mm -hmm. not there yep. and so you know we have to get folks in at the ground floor first and that's what i, I think the tiny mba 
what's been fun about it is it's great for the person who's right there at the ground floor and helps them see, wait a second, there is a kind of business that is different from the kind of business that I've been exposed to through Entrepreneur Magazine and TechCrunch and whatever media outlet you, you are aware of the business world through. But then for folks who are further along in the process, there's still less, there's always lessons to be learned. So uh, it's it's been... You know, the the book is in, in some ways a culmination of what's now over a, a decade of being in business ourselves with our own individual businesses, but then putting our heads together, Amy and I, and saying, what do we see in our businesses and our friends' businesses that aren't common or obvious, or maybe other people don't have the same vantage point that we do to yeah. be able to observe these patterns of why people succeed and struggle? Mm-hmm. And that's really what we try to sum up in in the work that we do and then provide the specific lessons examples and things that people can actually put into practice right yep i mean because i feel like we're kind of at the cow paths stage of creating a business on the internet where there is not like there's a a national you know a highway system and there's well-trodden pathways so people have a tendency to to copy the wrong things from businesses that are fundamentally different and That's it's such a good way to put it. I totally agree. Yeah. So, so like you guys, I have lots of students and, and, you know, you guide them, you coach them, you say, you can kind of tell when somebody's doing something that's not going to work, but when they're doing something that is, but then there's a lot of things that might work, but you can never guarantee it. So when you start to have anecdotes and piling up on top of each other and like, okay, here are the 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 common practices that kind of work in this new kind of business like i went to music school and and it reminds me of that there was i had one teacher uh so uh, i think it was an arranging yeah an arranging teacher which you know it doesn't matter what that is but it's a music guy who was saying you know we don't teach you rules here at berkeley we teach you style practices so we can't say that what you're doing is right or wrong Unless you're saying you're trying to sound like John Coltrane. If you're trying to sound like John Coltrane, you have to do this and that and the other, or you're not going to sound like him. Or if you want to sound like country, or you want to sound like uh, bebop or jazz or whatever, like there are style practices. There are no rules, but there are style practices. So if you're going to build a business that's one of these new things, like whatever, maybe you guys have a clever name for it, but whatever these new, like make money online internet businesses there're going to be style practices that aren't guarantee aren't going to guarantee success but if you violate them if you copy the wrong business and you're trying to create a country song and sound like John Coltrane that's <laughs> that's probably not going to work the other piece to that is is you may not have any advantages that put you on a path to sound like John Coltrane meanwhile you do have advantages to sound like either another artist or forget the other artists just sound like the best version of you and mm-hmm. I feel like that's a, a common theme here, too, is people are so busy trying to copy what other people do without really knowing what's going on under the hood yeah. instead of evaluating whatever assets or advantages or strengths they have and going, let me use every single advantage I've got. That's like one of the earliest lessons in 30 by 500, which is our flagship course, which is we're not here. And I think you're totally we're not here to teach you the only way to start a business, but we're teaching you how to examine the advantages that you already have. Pick the ones that are most valuable at the starting line. And then for the ones you don't have, how to build them along the way so that when you get a few steps ahead, you're not looking around going, well, shoot, where's that tool? And you realize, I, I, I don't, I can't, I can't get it. I can maybe buy, you know, like I can maybe buy attention through ads, but that's not the same as earned attention through, you know, content or education or a newsletter and things like that. So mm. 
Yeah, I think it's 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 those two things. It's evaluate the advantages that you have and then build the ones that you don't. That's that's the theme. Mm, cool. That's so that was 30 by 500, but let's switch to the book. So what would you who's who is the best reader for the book? Who's the ideal reader? That's a really good question. Normally I'd have a much better answer for this. I think what's interesting about this book as I've now watched it be received, I'd say there's it's one of three main categories. The first one is naturally the widest. It's the person who's broadly interested in business. Maybe they want to start a business of their own, but from the outside, it feels really big and daunting and scary. Mm -hmm. And the second person is the person who has gotten over that fear and is literally somewhere near day one, maybe in the first few days, weeks, or months of having started a business. And then the third, and this is maybe the most surprising, especially after you've heard me say those first two, is the person who's got a business off the ground and things are humming along and they want to return to first principles. And that's what you were just talking about with your music instructor, where, you know, those the sort of core practices or first principles is a way that I've heard it described as well, which is it doesn't matter how experienced you are, you're going to run into challenges. Problems don't go away in business or life for that matter. You just trade up. You get new problems. <laughs> and I think the more complicated problems get, the more people are tend to abandon first principles. And so the third audience is experienced entrepreneurs who want to return to roots and go, how did I get here again? And what have I maybe forgotten along the way that I would like to return to and maybe evaluate the current situation, either for opportunities or or problem solve. The book is weird because it's not it's not the kind of thing that really lines up with a lot of other business books, because the book doesn't teach explicit lessons, which is kind of uh, you know given given the word you know or the words one hundred very short lessons about the long game of business is literally the subtitle of the book. Most of the lessons aren't so much lessons as prompts or questions or examples or very short parables to get you thinking. So my goal with the book is not to give you an answer. It's to give you better questions to come up with your own better answers. Right. And that was actually my next question, which was the, the format of the book is very unusual. Uh, it's kind of like a collection of Zen cones or something. But it, you, I think you put it perfectly. It's kind of like prompts and anecdotes and uh, insights and I mean, you could probably, I think I read the whole thing in, a, in an hour, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's physically small, it's cute, it's like illustrated, it's, it's kind of fun, you know, and it's, it's not intimidating, but it's still, it really make, it really makes you think, I mean, of course, I can only speak for myself, but like, for me, a lot of the lessons were like, oh, that's a good way to put that. Like, I know that's true, but that's a good way to put it, you yeah. know? To hear it makes you think is like the highest compliment that I can hear about this book. So thank you for saying it. Okay. But ultimately, like that's the goal is I want people who have kind of gotten into a rut with their thinking where they're not challenging their own thinking at all. And I could tell you the thing. I know I've got a decade of experience telling people things that they don't listen to in the first place. So instead, <laughs> I try to get people to so to, come, to to come to the conclusion on their own right. or to observe a conclusion I came to and go, Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean the 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 other 
comparison besides the Zen cones, which uh, some folks have said is folks um, and, and you being in the, from the music world, I didn't know that about you, by the way. That's really interesting. You're probably familiar with Brian Eno, the electronic oh, yeah. music producer. Yeah, his so card deck, yeah. Yeah, so Brian Eno's card deck of the Oblique Strategies was designed not, I mean, A, it's a deck of cards instead of a book, which frankly, the tiny MBA could be as well, but I don't know that business people would buy a deck of cards. <laughs> um, that was an intentional choice. But the Oblique Strategies does a similar thing where it's designed to spark creativity. You can't tell someone, go be creative or right. go be creative in this particular direction. That's just not how creativity works. You have to kind of prime the, the, the gears in a certain way. And so Brian Eno did that with prompts that are designed to, I think, spark a combination of lateral thinking or changed perspective and things like that. And so I was super inspired by, I feel like the Tiny MBA sits somewhere between the way Derek Sivers writes his very short essay books. Yeah, I was and gonna say Derek Sivers. You remind me and, of, it reminds me of Derek too, yeah. Yeah, and, and Brian Eno's oblique strategies. The th- other thing about this is like I don't think if I sat down to write this book I could have written this book. This book grew out of a thread on Twitter that started as a challenge to write down essentially one hundred lessons, observations and and perspectives about a theme. And the theme that I picked was building businesses that are built to last. And the response to those 100 tweets gave me the sort of clue, both writing those tweets in public and seeing the response to it, but then also the endured response to those tweets made me think with the right packaging and with some guidance and framing, you know, the right forward, the right preface, some additional supplemental recommended reading, and ultimately the direction of, you don't have to read the whole Twitter thread in order for one of the tweets to be valuable to you. If I can put that in book form so you can thumb through it, grab a page or a couple of pages, and I've been hearing from folks that say, like, I'd open to a random page and the lesson happened to be really relevant to a (laughs) problem I was dealing with today. And I was like, it's kind of like a magic eight ball in that way. It doesn't always work, but when it does, it feels really cool. So, yeah, I I don't I don't think that I'm very I don't know if this format is replicable without going all the way back to the beginning of the process, which is to have a pretty clear idea of of the kinds of challenges and problems that I've seen people observe in sort of wide swaths within our audience and then use the constraints of Twitter to force me to sort of narrow my thoughts or uh, narrow my framing to even get an idea that maybe was just, you know, longer than 280 characters. It forced me to get it even more concise, even more clear and even more specific. Mm -hmm. And then that combined with a sort of public feedback loop might generate a similar thing that could be turned into a book down the road, or maybe the next one does need to be a deck of cards or some other format. But this kind of follows the 30 by 500 methodology, which is the format comes last. It's all about knowing who it's for and and knowing enough about them that you can show up for them and help them. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that was built into this book before it was even a book. Right. So how conscious were you, if at all, when you gave yourself that challenge or did someone give you that challenge? Like what were you thinking? Uh, hey, I have a, an interesting idea to, to, as a way to write a book, like, or, or like create some pe- like what was going through your mind when you, when you challenged it was, yourself? It was about four days before Christmas. I was bored on Twitter and I saw a few people doing this sort of meme that someone had posted and said, create a thread on Twitter 
as a thought, as an experiment in thinking and writing, where every time someone likes that tweet, you'll reply to it with a strong opinion, I think was the original framing. And I was like, I have some of those. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Um, Twitter. And yeah, and we're on Twitter. Twitter loves strong opinions. <laughs> and you know, um, Patrick McKenzie, Patio11 had published yeah. it. Uh, Saul Orwell from examine.com is another friend of mine up in Toronto. He had posted a version of this. Uh, Patrick had done one. I want to say it was around, like, I think it was around digital currency because he's got some really strong opinions and perspectives on, on crypto. Mm. Saul's was actually on personal relationships, so not a business-oriented thing at all. And I was like, ooh, what a fun thing to do. I'll do Mm -hmm. one of those. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was going to do 100. I said I would do up to 100. And I didn't know what any of them were going to be until I started writing them. Like, I got to the end of the first eight or nine, and I was like, this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. As someone who's (laughs) written a lot of tweets, these tweets are difficult. And so I had to kind of come up with a framework for writing... You know, for, for again, for getting clear enough on a thing. And then also I started breaking it into like buckets of 10 or so. Like right. what, what's something I've got roughly 10 thoughts on? Or if I start somewhere, I can take a thought and kind of evolve it to the next one. So one of the things that folks who who read this knowing that it started on Twitter – there's there I did edit the tweets both for clarity and context but the order that they show up in the book is the exact same order that I wrote them in mm-hmm. and we talked about during the editing process and designing rearranging it into you know chapters and sections and categories and decided against it because I think there is something that is not that you can't necessarily create on purpose from the emergent nature of the order that they came out yeah there is kind of a there they each one stands on its own but there are threads and clusters and i think that that is another kind of bit about why the magic eight ball thing works and and part of how some of the lessons show up for people you know during their first read through but what's cool is you know you, you can pick up the book and read through it like you said in less than an hour the first time and then you put it down and you know, six months later, maybe you pick it up again and read it again. And depending on what's changed in your business or changed in your work, you new things might stand out to you or things that you read before are going to look different. Because again, the book is, it's very weird to try and get people excited about a book where I'm like, the contents of the book is not really the thing. The way the book shows up in your brain is the thing. And so each time you look at it a little bit like a Rorschach test, it's going to appear to you perhaps the way that it needs to. Right. Yeah. It's like a, a card from the, Eno deck would say something like, you know, you're in the studio, you record a music, you're stuck, you pull a card. And then the, the only rule of the game is that you have to do it. Like you don't get to pick another card. Yeah. So you pick the card and the card will just say like, try it backwards. Yep. Or and like, you what gotta, would your brother do? Yeah. <laughs> or it's like, I don't know what that means, but okay. Right. right. And yours are yours are largely more fleshed out than that, but it's yes. a different context. And I 100% agree. If you try to reorder that or or create like packages, you know, of chapters or whatever. I mean, I do a daily email, and lots of times, you know, I've got like you know 500,000 words that have gone out to email list and then basically into the ether. And I can go back through, and sometimes I pull them into like a white paper or like a short book or a guide, just a PDF. And whenever, if I ever the whole thing can unravel like the whole I do. Sometimes I'll do an arc on a particular subject for a week or two. And usually I'm, I know what I'm doing that, that I'm going to turn it into like a standalone piece. And 
and if I try to mess with it too much, it just evaporates. Like it, yeah. it, it loses the the sequence. It's like leading someone along, and then if you just chop that into bits and reorganize them, it's like you're just lost. So it's almost yeah. like you're out. You're open. Like I leave open loops that get answered in the next one, and that keeps the forward momentum going. But if you switch the order, they all disappear, and it's like this is boring. <laughs> totally, totally agree. Yeah, it's. I've had a, a few folks ask, and actually Amy wrote a similar thread about software design, and I think there's something in there that can be evolved, but I don't think it's necessarily the exact same kind of book. But I've, you know, I talked to a friend who's a lawyer and really wants to do like a tiny MBA, but for, you know, law for solo businesses or something like that. And I'm like, mm -hmm. there's something there, but I I don't know how, like, we're going to have to, cr like, there was a bit of lightning in a bottle with this one. And I mm -hmm. will acknowledge full stop. There's some luck in the timing that even created a thing. And then I noticed the thing that was being created and, and sort of seized the opportunity rather than <laughs> letting it pass me by. But I think the interesting thing that I that I don't know and I'm, I'm curious to explore in the future is, is the environment, if we treat it almost like gardening, right? You can't make plants grow, but you can create the environment for them to grow. Yeah. To take a look back and go, what were the elements of that challenge, of the environment that allowed, allowed that challenge to happen? And can I present that to somebody else and have it turn into something that can then be packaged either, again, as a book or something else? It doesn't need to be a book. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a fun thought experiment, and it you know it fits my own interests as a as a design thinker too, to unpack why something happened in the first place, and say, well, is that something that we can learn things from, or is if it's a thing we want to happen, what were the elements that allowed it to happen again? That's mm -hmm. actually like there's a meta lesson in the book about that. Um, not a meta lesson, there's an explicit lesson in the book about mm -hmm. that, where it says, you know, if something is working in the business step back and take the time to evaluate why it's working and then make sure that the systems that are in place ensure that the thing that's working keeps working because so many problems that happen in business aren't because anything went wrong, but because something that was working was no longer being tended to. Mm, interesting. Just entropy. Entropy is a force that we actually, we talk about in sort of the stacking the bricks universe a lot. And that um, Amy has a, one of my favorite lines is uh, of all the things she's ever written is that starting a business is like picking a fight with entropy. <laughs> it, it will perpetually <laughs> be trying awesome. to pull itself apart. And your job is to find the cohesiveness <laughs> and build the systems that work to counter the entropy. And anyone who's been in business knows exactly what I'm talking about. And anyone who has not been in business thinks that this might think that this sounds a little bit crazy, but the, the this kind of goes back to what I was saying before is like, it's the entire world is just problems. And once you learn to look at it that way and don't treat problems as the worst thing in your day, but as the opportunity to make something better, whether mm -hmm. it's for your customers, your clients, or in your own business or in your own life, that sort of inversion is, is a, is a worldview change. And it's yeah. not an easy one, but it's a critical one. And when it's made, I think it, you know, it's, it, it's lightning. Um, yeah. like it, it, it lightens a burden, um, that I think a lot of people go through life and work feeling like everything's going wrong instead of looking at the, everything's going wrong, going, is there something wrong with the system or is the thing that's going wrong actually the opportunity being put right in front of me to make something better instead? Yeah. The obstacle is the way. Yeah. So, uh, now I distracted myself and my landscapers are here. That's fabulous. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so let's talk about, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the choices around the physical 
book and like sure. what that experience was like. So what what was the process there? And this is this is somewhat selfish for me because I'm exploring the idea of doing an actual print book. I've got a bunch of self-published ebooks, but uh, I have one coming that would make more sense as a physical book. And I'm curious uh, for and I'm sure there are listeners who have explored the same ideas. Uh, what what was that experience like with you? What can you tell us about you know, surprises or, oh, it was brutal. It was easy. Yeah. So I had a pretty strong feeling from the beginning of thinking that this could be a book, that a physical book would be especially meaningful for this product, given that it is this very short thing that I really want folks to come back to often. So it being visible and whether it's, you know, on your desk or on your coffee table or on your bookshelf, that it's something you're going to see and be reminded of. I love what e- the power the ebooks have in terms of distribution and not having to transport them when you move. <laughs> but <laughs> but a physical book takes up space. And having a physical book in your space is going to I think it informs the meaning of the book. And not not the necessarily the words themselves, obviously, but I think you have a different relationship with words on a printed page than you do on a digital one. And, and yeah, the physical. I think book that's is, why people love books. It's a book of prompts, and the physical nature of it is itself a prompt. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so that was sort of the, the the driving, a big part of the driving piece of the decision. The other thing is, is we have a couple of really successful eBooks as well. Amy's got her. Uh, her book around starting and finishing projects just fucking ship mm-hmm. and that yeah. sold 10 you know over 10,000 almost 15,000 copies i think in its lifetime we have mm-hmm. a version 2 that is like ever creeping towards the finish line and we've talked a bunch of times about what it would be like to have a printed version of that and so i also saw this as a opportunity for me to like work out the kinks of the process learn how it goes right. and if it goes well now we have the you know the stack of tools and knowledge to publish another printed book mm-hmm. so once once I knew we were heading this direction I reached out to a designer this is also the first time that I've hired a designer for one of our products normally Amy is doing the design for our digital products and Amy absolutely could have done the design for this but she's been dealing with some health issues so I was like alright I'm going to bring in some some new blood some, some fresh perspective on this uh, and worked with my friend Hannah who did an amazing job inside and out in giving this book a, a feel that one of my favorite conversations that we had about sort of the the actual design design of the book was when we started looking at covers and she asked me you know what kinds of books are you inspired by is there a kind of book that you would like the cover of this one you know if they were sitting on a bookshelf next to each other what what, what, what do you think would be complimentary and in my head I had this sort of duality of a very classic business book because the you know so much of this stuff is timeless so much of the stuff is learned from timeless business books things like you know Dale Carnegie and Stephen Covey and and so on and so forth and if you look at all of those all of their books on you know Google images they all look kind of like each other <laughs> um, they have a very certain kind of you know font choice and color style and things like that and so I was interested in kind of leaning that direction but also because because I'm me and because of stacking the bricks and because this is sort of meant to buck a trend in business I, I almost thought maybe it would be fun to be almost like a parody 
of that. Okay. And so I was yeah. like, how to win friends and influence people except the opposite. And she's like, okay. <laughs> um, but funny. somehow found a way to, to really kind of embody that where the color, the topography, and the styling, both inside and out, very much a nod, more, more of a like a send up than a than a parody in in a lot of ways and you know people have have responded really really well the other thing was it knowing that it was small when i started looking at actual print partners and what our options were i knew that i wanted to avoid relying on amazon for a variety of reasons oh the we, biggest, yeah we got to go there <laughs> we got to go there okay yeah, so i'm i'm very anti amazon so i have all, all presumably all of the same concerns about amazon and just putting more money into those pockets and so i think that's that's a good reason on its own to not not work with amazon the other very very critical piece is and this isn't i think a lot of folks don't realize when you self publish with amazon is when you're using amazon's print on demand fulfillment which they do print books those customers are not your customers. Mm -hmm. They are Amazon's customers. You get paid a royalty. And that might sound like splitting hairs, but the important piece here is that means that you don't own that customer relationship. You can't do customer support if something goes wrong, handle things the way you want to handle them. You know, some people view that as an advantage. I don't have to handle support. No big, like, great. Um, for me, I see that as a liability. If something goes wrong, Amazon's going to handle it the way Amazon wants to handle it, which may not be what I want to do. And uh, we actually ran into a, a very specific situation where even though we didn't do the print-on-demand with Amazon, I thought it might be useful to do Kindle. Since we know that so many people love reading ebooks on their Kindle, we get asked pretty regularly for our ebooks on Kindle. Mm-hmm. We give people the instructions on how to load it onto their device, but to go directly into the Amazon marketplace with a Kindle version, I was like, all right, so the devil I know. <laughs> um, I know what the trade offs are. And for me, the, 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 the reason to even consider the Kindle version was we care a lot about getting this book in a lot of people's hands. This is, again, first principles, and it might be somebody's first introduction to thinking about business this way. Right. So the potential yeah, there's for, a marketing us, value. Yeah. for us to bring our audience to Amazon and then Amazon be a force multiplier through its recommendations algorithm and the leaderboard, which, by the way, worked. Like, I don't, uh, we had to stop it before it could fully work. But uh, without getting too far into the weeds, we had an issue on launch day where a, a, a non-trivial percentage of our customers went to get the book on their Kindle Paperwhite and it got an error that said the book is not available on this device. The reasons for that are a more complicated story that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. The thing that really matters is that the Amazon's answer to that problem was if the customers want to contact us and request a refund, we'll issue a refund. But other than that, we're not doing anything. And that was the moment where I decided to pull the book off of Amazon, even though we had sold hundreds of copies on Amazon already and had the potential to sell who knows, thousands, tens of thousands more. Mm. But to know that if something goes wrong, Amazon's answer is going to be, we're not doing anything about it. When I'm the one, when I'm, as, the, as the creator of the book is the one contacting them, that, that, that's not okay for me. So, uh, so that's, that's the, the short version of the, the Kindle story. The good news is that 
there are now some very good alternatives to Amazon's print on demand feature, which, you know, they they bought a company called Create Space some numbers some number of years ago. And I have a lot of author friends who really like Create Space in terms of the print quality and all those kinds of things, but they're also all looking at it going, if I had an alternative, I would leave Amazon in a heartbeat. Mm. It's very author hostile. I mean, I use like in my personal life, we buy tons of stuff from Amazon. But as an author, I'm I'm very anti Amazon. Yeah, yeah. We um. So I found a company called Lulu that has been around for a while, and Lulu has an entire sort of author platform geared towards self published authors, where you can do everything from, you know, upload your files, hire an editor, hire a designer. Like you could come in with a basic manuscript and hire all of the work out through. Lulu. Lulu is sort of like publisher for hire. Mm-hmm. And that includes having infrastructure to put your book on Amazon, put your book into the Ingram catalog so it can show up in bookstores and things like that. But what I found along the way is that under the hood, Lulu has effectively an API. So their software is able to be connected to other software. And they actually have a separate service called Lulu Express that is free to sign up for and has a Shopify plugin and then you install that Shopify plugin into a Shopify store and it basically lets you treat your book like a digital product right up until the moment that somebody clicks order and then it packages up all the order information and ships it over to Lulu and Lulu handles everything. They print the book on demand, they package it, they ship it to your customer and here's the beautiful part is, is their system is based on distribution centers, printing facilities around the world. So if you order a book in the US, it's gonna come from one of, I think two or three shipping locations closest to you to cut down on shipping costs and carbon footprint. But now expand that to a global situation where people are ordering books in Europe and in Asia and in Australia and New Zealand and literally every continent at this point where their system automatically has the book produced in the places that is closest to the customer, which means that I can do international shipping for under eight bucks to anywhere in the world, Wow! which is amazing. On top of all of this, and this is the most glowing review of any product or service I think I've ever used, is their customer service has been incredible, which is such a, a contrast to what I experienced with Amazon. When we get an email from somebody uh, who bought the book, the you know it's coming to me so I can handle it the way I want to, but I have a direct line to effectively an account manager at Lulu who, no questions asked, will replace the order at no cost to us, ship it, ship it expedited. Um, they've helped us work out technical issues. Like we, 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 it's not been without glitches. Everything, you know, things are gonna go wrong, but everything that has gone wrong in the Lulu production side of the stack, I've been so impressed with the, how they handle things and for that to be matched with print quality that if you if you did not know this was print on demand, you certainly wouldn't guess it. Uh, it's it's the thing that, you know, if, if we had to order even a thousand copies of the book before I knew that we had orders for it, I don't think we would have made a print book. Um, I'll say that again. What do you if mean? We had, if we had to like, go through a traditional process of ordering like a pallet of a thousand copies of the book. Oh, in order oh, to, oh, like pre, pre-purchase your own yeah, and then ship yeah, them out versus, manually. Versus print on demand. You know, even if we could have, you know, it's not even the cost thing. It's 
Now I've got to worry about, you know, are we, are we warehousing it? Do we have a fulfillment partner? Am I the one shipping? It's like a million things to think about. Lulu made it all so easy to say, look, if all this thing does is sell, you know, a few dozen copies, I mean, I'll be bummed and we'll have lost money, but at least I don't have a case of books in my basement waiting to be pulped. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talk so, about a prompt. Like, yeah, oh, so, I'm a failure. <laughs> yeah, so I'm so impressed with what's available to independent authors, people like you and me, to provide a great experience for customers to buy our book and receive our books, print, digital, and everything in between, for us to own the customer relationship, for us to have great customer service on the pieces of that stack. Um, it required you know, a little bit of you know, 20, 21st century Legos using things like Zapier to tie together. You know, we've got Shopify as the storefront that sends the orders to Lulu via their API, and then it also sends order information over to Podia, who handles our digital distribution, which fires off an email to let the customer know, here's how you get your digital copy. So, like, there's some, you know, th truthfully, I don't think it's that m much less smooth than buying something from Amazon in the grand scheme of things, yeah. Um, especially now that Shopify has their, you know, their super streamlined checkout. If you already have a credit card saved with them from another Shopify-powered store, mm. it's as close to a one-click checkout as I think you can get without actually being on Amazon. Yeah, I mean, to me, yeah, you were talking about Amazon alternatives before. Shopify is the obvious one. To Shopify is like Amazon for control freaks. So <laughs> that's great. <laughs> totally right. Yeah. Yeah, which I am. So, <laughs> same. Yeah, cool. All right. So, uh, I'm just curious. This is probably not that interesting to anybody but me. But however, I'm going to ask. Um, the 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 format of the book is non-standard, right? Like that's not a standard format, right? You're talking about the print size. Just the size, yeah. Yeah. So the print size is one of the built-in options for Lulu. It was actually one of really? the reasons that we chose Lulu over. There was like two other options, and I, I, I'm honestly blanking out on their names because I don't Blurb. remember. But I was I, I was reading about the yeah. options. Lulu came out ahead for a bunch of reasons, but one of the, the I was glad to be able to choose them because of their print format options. They do they do a bunch of other things too. They do you know like 12 month calendars, like you could upload a bunch of photos and do calendars. Yep. They do comic books, which is really cool. I know. If you do like, I like got my eyes on that. Comic books or coloring books. Um, yeah. And then this is their, they call it, it's a pocket book and it is a standard size for them. I couldn't find it anywhere else, but the size lent itself to the format that we were working with. And it was great to be able to sort of give those, it's like just under five inches by seven inches. It, it fits in a jeans pocket, at least a mm -hmm. men's jean po jeans pocket mm -hmm. um, uh, and definitely a back pocket. Right. But uh, yeah, the, the physical size of it was one of those things where as soon as I saw those dimensions on the website, I was like, that would be cool. And then when we <laughs> ordered the proof, I was like, this is perfect. I couldn't have I couldn't have come up with these dimensions on my own and had them be better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised it's not custom. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of Lulu. Blurb is another one. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there's a third, but I've goofed around with them and and always dropped the ball at some point. But now that now this like, uh, glowing review, I think Lulu is the obvious one for me. Like I've got got the manuscript, just need the you know some nice cover design, yeah, the the stuff, the stuff. Yeah, and they they do a nice job of providing you with sort of a full toolkit of preparing the book and. 
It's similar to if you've ever done like print on demand t-shirts or anything like that. You download a, a template file that shows you your edges and your bleed and stuff like that. And I will say that, you know, it's print on demand. So it's, you know, the things might not line up perfectly every single time. Mm -hmm. It's not manufacturing precision, right. but they're, it's still remarkably good. Uh, so, you know, the first time we did it, there was, you know, the spine was off by... I don't know, an eighth of an inch. Mm -hmm. And so we just adjusted the design so that even if it's off by an eighth of an inch, it doesn't look bad. Yep. And I think you have to go into it with those kinds of considerations and do the testing. And if you do that, you, you end up with a, a product that, like I said, we've now shipped. Uh, we One of the things that's been surprising to me is we've actually shipped more print books than than any other format. Hmm. I was expecting print to be in some version of the minority, but we've shipped close to 2000 print copies around the world already. And it's just, it's been less than three months. And wow. the, to see them show up with consistent quality wherever people are receiving them in the world, that was a concern that I had, knowing that they had this sort of like distributed facility thing, what's quality control gonna be yeah, like? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And like, you know, my US based ones might be really awesome, but when they get shipped, you know, from, you know, somewhere in that, that serves, I think like their main warehouse is in Australia that serves a lot of Southeast Asia. Something gets shipped from there. Is it going to look as good? Is the quality going to be as good? And getting pictures from folks around the world, holding a copy of the book, by the way, is the <laughs> coolest experience. Yeah. And you're like, oh, but it looks also, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but also to see that the quality is consistent um, with, with Lulu Expresses has been really great. That's cool. Well, good to know. I hope they keep it up. <laughs> yeah, me too. Excellent. So what have we, have we left unturned? What stone have we left unturned here? Like what, were there any other big, I mean, this is not your first time uh, at the rodeo in terms of, of releasing a product or doing marketing or anything like that. So uh, was there anything about this particular experience? Of is this your first physical product? I yeah, know. I mean, if you think about Indie Hall as a physical co-working space, no, but <laughs> I, but it, it, for stacking the bricks, absolutely, and f in terms of something that is actually manufactured in this way, then yeah. then then yes, uh, I think you know I think the fact that we could treat it like a digital product right up until the last moment eased a lot of my concerns. I will say that once you involve you know physical products and global mail systems mm. like things break <laughs> and i had definitely had moments where i got a little upset about it but i realized that a so long as i have a way to make good on it with our distribution partner with lulu yeah. then there's nothing really to be upset about people are, are patient and understanding and you know things get lost in the mail i think what was interesting is we did a pre-order of a physical product and then did this print-on-demand fulfillment, which is, I think, a kind of unusual combo. Normally, people do a pre-order so they can do a big batch order and then ship them out. But in order to do that with Lulu, I would lose the ability to sort of ship individual books to, to right. folks. So, so we did the pre-order essentially inside Shopify. And then about a week before release, submitted all of those orders up until that day in one big batch. Mm -hmm. And so what was interesting about that is, you know, I think for a lot of folks... If your your book is doing really well, you're selling, you know, a book a day, a couple books a day. We've been holding steady between like four and ten books a day, which folks in the in the book world tell me that three months in is really good. Mm -hmm. So I'm proud of that. But what was interesting is because we had that big batch of books get submitted early on, 
we kind of got to see what all of the kinks look like in the first couple <laughs> of weeks because we ha- we had it was sort of like stress testing obviously the lulu system was fine they ship way more books than than our volume we're, we're a blip on their radar right but you start seeing you know the ways that things get lost in the mail the way that the person doing the packing in the warehouse grabs a giant box instead of a tiny envelope because that's what was closest or they ran out of things <laughs> like it within a few weeks i saw all the weird things and pr- probably not all the weird things but several of the weird things that i could come to expect later on and i feel like learning that lesson early on is kind of soothing because mm-hmm. we got through it and we have had no refund requests from from the print books uh and and really only one refund request from somebody who i think thought they were getting an actual mba for seven dollars and 99 cents <laughs> and you know you can't make everyone happy <laughs> but other than that like hey, that's a lot of money people yeah i know i mean for in some parts of the world like well, i know you I joke, know but... west virginia um <laughs> it's uh, whatever it was anyway that was I, you know what i i mean the you know the lesson there is the is, is the lesson in all cases like that person's clearly having a really challenging day right and it's got nothing to do with me and i refunded their money and i, I said i hope your day gets better and that's it um <laughs> so yeah i mean i think I I learned a lot in this. It was really really fun. The experience, the way people respond to a physical book is is different from a, a digital book as well. You know, I mentioned before people taking pictures of it when it arrives is a thing that I've never experienced before, and it's cool and it's great marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the number of people who recommended the book along with a photo of it, or just recommended the book at all publicly i th- i think was different with a physical book than with a digital one yeah there's, uh, there's more of a relationship there yeah it's you know given that the barrier to be able to do it is lower than ever before to produce something really great if you've ever done a digital book i would encourage you to to try a, a print one this is my my two thumbs up is this is worth doing it's a really mm-hmm. great experience the other thing is you know the once you get a taste for for the physical book it also i think it just it opens up some interesting interesting doors to start just thinking a little bit differently so you know i had never really thought about doing something like a book club with an ebook because i don't i don't know why it never i never felt like maybe in my head like you write in an ebook and you expect people to be reading it in isolation on their computer or on their kindle Whereas with a physical book, you can conjure the image of people sitting around in a circle and talking about the book. Obviously, the content's not different, but there's, like you said, there's a different relationship with it. And so I feel like for for us, th- this opens really interesting doors for the ways people can interact with the book. The long term of the book is really exciting. And I mean, even with, with ebooks, we we've never... We, we've had a lot of success with, with obviously marketing the books in the past, but I've never had somebody reach out and go, can I buy copies of this as a gift without us prompting <laughs> the idea? Yes. And because physical books 
make great gifts and people love giving physical books as gifts. If you make your book into a physical book, I think it's more likely to be gifted, which in terms of a multiplier effect on your book being in the world and helping people, I think that's a, a unique advantage of a physical book over a digital book. It can also be, it's more likely to be, you know, shared. You know, I read this book. It was really good. You can borrow my copy. Mm-hmm. It's technically easier to do that with a digital book, but I think people are more <laughs> likely to do it with a physical book. Uh, isn't that funny? I, I agree. The other thing that we did that was, uh, I mentioned our pre-order We did, I tried something new that, I mean, I should say all of this comes with a caveat that if you don't already have an audience to launch your products to, print on demand is a good way to do it because you don't have to worry about the upfront costs, but it doesn't replace the need to have an audience know how to reach them, know how to communicate to them. All those kinds of things are built in. And we have an email list for stacking the bricks already. But I did something where I let folks know before I let our list know, I let folks know in our more active watering holes. So, you know, chat rooms and and forums and places like Indie Hackers where a lot of our audience hangs out and said, hey, we're working on something new. If you want to be one of the first people to get on the pre-order list, send an email to, in this case, it was Alex at TinyMBA, which is a special email address I just set up for the book. Mm-hmm. And I, I basically set up a separate inbox that I could tag all the people that were writing into that address and have a extremely warm list of launch day waiting list leads. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is I I borrowed this idea from when the crew at 37 Signals launched their email service, Hey. And instead of having an email capture form, they said, send us an email to iwant at hey.com and tell us about whether you love or hate email. And I was like, that's so smart. Because you're getting their email address because they want the product, but you're also getting them to talk to you about what they like about email, what they hate about email. But you get their language, you get their emotions, and people are emotional about email. So mm-hmm. I was like, this is this is brilliant. And and I thought, you know, I can do something similar to that. Maybe I can do something similar to that launching the tiny MBA. And so what I took with those over the course of, I don't know, about two weeks, I, I got about 300 people to write in to the to be on the pre-order list. And many of them wrote more than just, I want the book. They wrote, you know, a friendly note, something just <laughs> motivating. Like, I'm so excited. I love, you know, this. I love the podcast or I love the other products that you've done or I just love your art, whatever it is. Like just affirmation, which that is really valuable for motivation. And then sometimes it was questions. I'm getting people asking like, well, you know, what is this going to be like? And then I have the ability to answer a specific person and kind of work out that language before I'm writing my sales page. Right. Super yeah. valuable yeah. as a practice. And then uh, on when it became time to actually start taking pre-orders, before I sent an email to our list and before I even tweeted about it, I, I manually sent an email in reply to each of those 300 and it was like 320 people where the bulk of it was a copy paste like, hey, it's launch day. Here's, you, you know, you can come get the book now. Mm-hmm. The opening line or two, if it was someone that I knew personally or knew anything about, it was a, a personal reply before I wrote the before I shared the sort of copy paste part. But remember, I'm not sending, I thought about importing all those email addresses into ConvertKit and sending it as a blast. And I was like, wait a second, they sent me an email with 
a subject line that they wrote that I can reply to. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I when I reply, I'm going to skip the marketing filters. I'm going to skip the spam filters. It's going to show up reminding them of an email they wrote me, which Gmail or whatever is going to prioritize. And that process of replying to an email that they sent me, I saw the fastest rate of conversion, not just not the highest rate, not like the percentage of people who I emailed bought the book, but literally within 45 seconds of getting the email, an order came through. It was unreal. So again, I'd put that in the, I'm not sure exactly what parts of that are replicatable, but you sure know I'm going to study that. Mm-hmm. We're going to experiment some more and see what is translatable into other launches. But I think the idea of building a pre-order launch list that is a combination of people who you know already have bought things from you and are already on your list and things like that, I think a lot of business folks know that mechanism. But the idea of doing it with a an actual inbox where people can write you an email and then you can reply to that when launch day comes is something that takes a bit of extra effort so a lot of people won't do it or they'll try to automate it and they'll ruin the experience along the way yeah the truth is is it took me about an hour a day across three days each so a total of three hours to respond to all of those emails mm-hmm. and the momentum that that generated i view, didn't view that as a sales tool so much as a momentum generating tool right because those people are the most excited to buy, and they're the ones who, after they buy, they're going to tweet about it. They're going to post to Facebook. They're going to post to LinkedIn. They're going to tell their friends without me even asking. And if I even nudge them in that direction, it's more of a sure deal. So it was sort of like winding up the uh, for for the or like winding up as the batter before the ball's even there, <laughs> so that I've got the most potential energy stored up, so that the swing can be as as strong and 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 the follow through can be as far reaching as possible. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I I mean, this is off topic, but since you brought it up, the I I switched my thank you page on my uh if you sign up for something on my site, you know, the thank you page used to, you know, I don't even remember, had like a discount for my book or something like that. Uh and I uh now what it does after somebody subscribes for something, it, you know, like a free list or something, it asks them a question on the page and has like an just a clickable email of my real email and the email that all of my automation comes from. And I sense, I don't know, but I get the sense that there's two benefits to doing that. One is that, like you said, it's their subject line in their terms. Uh, they they answer the question. It's a very open-ended question. What challenges you're facing in your business right now? And, it, and they really brain dump. Like the people that that do that, they really brain dump. It's very personal, and uh, and I am and I imagine that that is since it's not something I automated. And people are frankly gobsmacked half the time when I email them back, and they're like, "This isn't an automation." And so I think there's a a, a trust building, relationship building thing that happens there. Like I care about, like I ask because I care, like I want to know, and I think that's good. But I also wonder if there's not, like you said some prioritization in the deliverability if the person has initiated an email to you before drip ever sends them anything yeah i'm fairly certain that if not a prioritization in the technical sense i think there's a prioritization in the person's mind for sure uh when when you you show up as a known sender um versus 
whatever you know sent as generic something even if it says <laughs> jonathan stark or alex holman or amy hoy or whatever it is i think the thing is like the thing with email automation and i'm a huge fan of email automation by the way mm-hmm. i think the problem with a lot of email automation is the emails are written for automation and so they feel like automation right uh and i think you know what you're, what you're doing in, in one of the lessons in the tiny mba is to flintstone stuff and it's it's a slightly different variation of doing things that don't scale it's it's very intentionally doing things that don't scale for a very specific reason. Right. And that sounds like no a really one else good doing it because it doesn't one. scale. <laughs> exactly. Now that makes me think of there was a, something you had tweeted out. Uh, you actually replied to something I was tweeting about how bad I am at SEO. Oh. And yeah. and you said SEO only matters if you're just one of many. If you're the one and only, SEO is irrelevant. And so I'm, I'm made me I mean, hearing you describe what you're describing now makes me think about like what are the things that you can do that 99.9% of people aren't going to do that make you stand out. Is that connected to this idea in any way, or is there is there more to it? That's a, that that whole thing. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I I haven't really talked about it publicly much. But the and I have friends who are great at SEO, and for a lot of businesses, it's like a huge portion of their income. And that 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 the tweet and that thought or that feeling of mine or belief is predicated on a notion that you're some kind of a service provider or or you know you're like one of us you're like someone who creates your creator you're not a big giant company um, you're just putting out valuable stuff into the world uh, most of my students are are some kind of service provider probably half of them are you know solo or small firm software developers but i've got quite a few copywriters and even some photographers and lawyers and architects and things like that but they're small firms or soloists who are an expert at some profession and if somebody's out there searching for an architect you've already lost like you should do the work so that they search for alex hillman yeah you know you don't want them to search for a uh, co-working space you want them to search for indie hall and it's very easy to own the search engine rankings for your name it's really easy you know i suppose there are some names that are exceptions to that but in general if you own a position in somebody's mind i mean like 90 percent of the traffic the search traffic to my site is for my name so like i don't need to do seo i just need to make i need to be famous that's all so <laughs> you know get famous and- I get famous, which is, I mean, the way you've gotten famous in the very specific way that you've gotten famous. And I think we have this in common. Famous for the for the people for whom we are famous means we're known as the people who helped them with a thing or can help them with a thing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm sort of what you just said is so interesting because it actually really ties back to what prompted my original tweet was somebody was just testing out the Ahrefs, you know, um, where you can put in your domain and it tells you what you rank for and stuff like that. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, the first 30 things we rank for are so stupid. <laughs> but, but but hearing, and it's like, uh, it's a lot of stacking the bricks in our own name and then other things like, you know, shut up and take my money and kick in the ass and <laughs> just like other things that are, a lot of them are Amy Hoyisms. Um, right. But <laughs> but what's 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 reinforcing to your point, Jonathan, I think is so critical is I looked at those first 15 or 20 things that we rank for being like all we rank for is our own name i'm so bad at seo and what you turned it around and said and and this is honestly the best answer that i got 
from anyone that I talk to about this is that's actually great because people are searching stacking the bricks. If people weren't searching stacking the bricks, that would be a problem. But mm-hmm. so much of you, for us to have a business sustaining amount of traffic coming from people actively searching us out, we own a category that we we exist in. Mm-hmm. Which is not the same as creating, a, you know, a new business category, but being—it's the difference between being known as a person who does a thing versus the person who does this thing really well. Exactly, the go-to person for something for, and and usually when I say get famous, I'm talking about being a big fish in a small pond. Like, yeah. like we're not talking about Kardashian famous. Like, you just need to be <laughs> <Thank> famous. Too <laughs> <laughs> so much surgery involved. The the. <laughs> All you have to do is get all you have to do like it's easy, but it's not complicated. It's yes, easy and easy and simple are two different things. It's, it's simple conceptually to pick a group of people. Nobody wants to do that, but you should pick a group of people who you want to help. However, you segment that population, demographic, psychographic, uh, whatever vertical, it doesn't matter. Just pick a segment of people who you're very well suited to help. Like you were saying earlier, like pick a superpower. And say, hey, who do I want to help with my superpower? And then find their expensive problems and say, hey, I can solve your expensive problems. And those birds of a feather are going to be hanging around in places online that you can. I mean, this is singing your song, like sales safari, find out what their pains are and and just become well known. How do you become well known to that group? You go there and help them and you do it for free as much as you can, like help people for free in the small pond uh, as much as you can at scale. So, you know, for me, it's a daily mailing list. It's, um, uh, free, st- a bunch of free stuff, tons of podcasts. I've got a bunch of free stuff. I answer questions in Slack rooms all over the place. And, and it's all revolves around a central theme. It's all around ditching hourly. Like that's the central theme. Stop trading time for money. Cause you'll never get anywhere doing that. Yeah. And, uh, and so I become known as the ditching hourly guy. Even if people don't search for my name, like if you search for the ditching hourly guy, the first five pages of results are me. Yeah. So it's like, so SEO to me, like I don't think SEO is irrelevant to everyone. Like I'm not trying to say that. Like if you if you're a locksmith, you better damn well have good SEO. But if you're selling uh, services or info products or physical products, whatever, like you want to be uh, the one and only. Like it's it's a pure positioning play. Like position yourself as something laser focused uh, that people care about and help them get what they want, and they're going to remember you. Everything you just described happens to be one of my favorite lessons in the Tiny MBA, which is (laughs) that audience building and self-promotion often get conflated with the worst aspects of self-promotion that people are overexposed to, and therefore they don't want to do those. They don't want to be bad self-promoters, but they think that all self-promoting is bad self-promotion. When in fact, the way I reframe it is that audience, if people thought of audience building as earning trust at scale, everything you just described, doing it in a sustained and durable way, building systems around it, whether those systems are a combination of automation or just your own in, uh, pr- you know, sustainable processes. Yeah, checklists, whatever. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, helping people at scale is the most reliable path to audience building for the average person who doesn't have built-in advantages of, you know, being a Kardashian or something <laughs> like that. Like, it's a different kind of fame. And in, fa- in fact, I think it's, in a lot of ways, not only is it attainable, I think it's it's more broadly useful. Um, if, you, if you've if you got a thing that you're good at, if, one of the ways that we talk about it 
within 30 by 500 is if you have the ability to get paid to do a skill for, you know, paid hourly to do a skill, which is again, where most people start, but they want to get out of, Mm -hmm. then one of the best things you can do is start looking for ways to show other people that you're good at that skill. And that means helping people in public so that people know that you're good at that skill. So they could consider working with you in other capacities. Once you have the audience, then you can start getting in, and even a very small audience, you can start getting more creative and away from the hourly billing and into packages or productized services or, or full on into to products and platforms. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we are all thoroughly on the same page. We're, we're on the same page. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's cool to hear. It's always fun and, and genuinely, uh, if it's great to spend time with people who were on the same page with that about, because again, going back to sort of why the tiny MBA exists and why all the stack in the brick stuff exists. And it sounds like why all of your stuff exists is because I'm thinking about your, your cow path analogy. I think it's right. a really good one where it's like, people want this. And I think you know, 2020 we're recording now in, in the middle of October, 2020, there are way more people that, wouldn't have considered some version of entrepreneurship and now are being forced into it because the job market has been, you know, obliterated by the pandemic and all kinds of things happening in the economy. I look back at all the things that entrepreneurial that happened uh, after the, the 07, 08 crash and without, uh, you know, I don't want bad things to happen to anybody, but I get excited about the potential for people to be looking at entrepreneurship now through a new lens it's unfortunate that the cause of that being now might be an act of desperation. But if we can be there, people like you and me and the folks who listen to your show and the folks who read our stuff, if we can be there with them, I think there's the potential for a new generation of entrepreneurs that looks very different from the generation of entrepreneurs that's gotten the most media and press over the last decade and change. And I think that's a really good thing. Hallelujah. Yes, absolutely. Cool. That's probably a great place to leave it. I know we could talk all day. We could. I know that's that's a great note to end on. I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> Super into it. That's that's the long game for you and I, Jonathan. And I'm glad we're on on playing the same game. Yes. And on the same team. Same team. Exactly. Cool. Where should people go to find out more about uh, all of your things? I mean, we've mentioned stacking the bricks a couple of times, but why don't you? What's the best place? Totally. So the tiny MBA can be found at tiny.mba. Super easy to remember. Short URL. And the Stacking the Bricks website is stackingthebricks.com. If you're on Twitter and want to hit me up there, I'm at Alex Hillman. Uh, that is my preferred day-to-day watering hole. So if you you know enjoyed anything in this conversation or if you do pick up a copy of the book and have a favorite lesson or page, I love hearing from people what their favorite page in the book was it's not too often that you get to say what was your favorite page in a book and people are like i don't know what page it was but in (laughs) in the tiny mba every page is kind of self-contained so if you have a favorite page or takeaway i'd love to hear from you shoot me uh, an email alex at tiny.mba or hit me up on twitter cool all right well thanks so much for joining me alex that's been super fun uh, apologies to the dear listener about my lawnmower outside i'll see if i can do something about that in post Uh, But uh, either way, I hope you join us next time on Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space? 
or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com call. Hope to see you there.